Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. Welcome back to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to mental health, self-improvement, and parenting. I am the host, Amy Quirconi. Remember, One Broken Mom is not a family show, so if you have any kids around and you don't want them to hear any adult language, turn this off and listen to it another time. Also, I do need to point out I am not a therapist, and even if I'm talking to a therapist, we are not offering any diagnosis or other medical or legal advice. We are here sharing stories and insights to help you widen your perspectives and your understanding. Everyone is different, our experiences are all different, and on One Broken Mom, I can cover the generalities of mental health, parenting, and self-help, but in the end, you need to find yourself a trusted caregiver, whether it's your doctor or a therapist or a coach, to work with and give you the undivided attention you deserve, okay? So with that said, this episode is actually going to be a teen safe episode. So parents, if you want to replay it with your kids so that it helps spur on some necessary conversations in your house, I have intentionally kept myself in check and have not used any profanity, at least so far I think so. So I'd like to introduce my guest today, Dr. Janet Berkey. Uh, Dr. Berkey is a professional clinical counselor who is licensed in both New Mexico and Texas and is a coach. Additionally, Janet is a full-time professor where she teaches interpersonal relationship courses and other communication topics. Janet and her husband, John, have been married for more than 34 years and have two married children and a German shepherd who, I'm told on good authority, lacks both manners and boundaries. And so welcome, Janet, to One Broken Mom. Thank you. And can you tell that I get excited talking about these topics? Oh, absolutely. I know. So let's try not to talk over each other because out of our like, you know, mutual excitement here. So um, yeah, yeah, I I get you. So um, right off the bat, um, you are a clinical counselor and a coach. Can you just help describe what those differences between those two professions are for people listening? Yeah, there are a lot of differences, but just basically a counselor will look at things in the past that have gone on and um, help clients work through those things. And a coach is action-oriented and forward-looking, you know, just where people are stuck, maybe in their goals, figuring out kind of what they want to do, whereas a counselor works with diagnosable issues. Got it. Okay. And so in the course of your practice, um, you're on the show because you work with a lot of families who are clearly going to see a therapist because they're having problems. And I know that when I was um, a young woman, you know, probably it started for me around 11 to, you know, up through middle school and stuff like that. I really, I, I felt I struggled and I, you know, asked for help directly. I, you know, I wanted to find out what was going on and troubling it. Um, I didn't get it, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, great. Here I am today, 46 years old and making up for it. Um, but the point is, is that I made it clear that I wanted to understand my own, my unhappiness, why I felt crappy. But not all kids are going to come right out and ask for help. And so today we're going to, um, you know, let you help us as parents look for the, the indicators and the triggers for a parent to observe um, where they should consider counseling or therapy for their kids. Um, and so you had five indicators that you felt like parents need to look into and, you know, make that evaluation themselves. Um, the first one, number one, is self-destructive behaviors. What do you mean by that? 
self-destructive behaviors. We see a lot of this um, even on TV shows. So does art mimic life or life mimic art? I'm not sure. But um, these could be behaviors such as cutting, drinking, unprotected sex, maybe as a rite of passage. And, you know, we're no longer looking at um, sexual exploration resulting in an unplanned pregnancy, maybe like we did several decades ago. Now we're looking at it that it can give our teens diseases and to some degree or or at some point maybe even take their life depending Mm -hmm. on um, what is contracted with that. So it's very, very serious, these things. Yeah. Um, And also looking at things like choking games. Mm looking at things like bullying situations, what is going on with that? So a lot of self-destructive behaviors that even if our teens are not involved in, they have a front row seat in our, in our world today to that. Right. Right. I know, you know, this is one of those areas for me that, um, you know, reflecting back on for one and and some people that follow me and read my blog and and, and know about what's going on um, know that, you know, we had some episodes with my daughter about a year ago where she started cutting and it was something that several of the the girls that she hung out with did. It was also obviously indicative of her, you know, overall unhappiness, which is why we made a living arrangement situation, why she came to, to stay with me. And in the course of this, her dad and I started doing research on self-harm. And one of the things he'd found was that, um, you know, a lot of people actually engage in that behavior. And, and so he and I both kind of talked about it and we thought, well, did we do anything like this when we were her age? You know, you know, I wasn't cutting. And it made me remember that I used to punch walls. I, I, I had such, you know, bad regulation of my, you know, my frustrations that, you know, I would take it out, you know, and my physical self-harming would be to find a, you know, a really firm wall and just kind of, you know, hit it. He used right. to poke himself with pencils while he was taking tests because he was so stressed out that it would just like that little bit of pain kind of gave him that surge and stuff. And, And I guess, you know, the question here, there is a question in there is, do you always treat self-harm as a, as a really serious issue or is there, is any of it something that's normal um, to kind of overlook? I mean, what's your thought on that? Wow. That is a great question. And I think each family um, on some level has to look at it for themselves and maybe their, their family culture, because there are some demographics and cultures that they're just much more vocal and and physical acting. Mm -hmm. But when that is surrounded by some other behaviors that are very negative and that are impacting the child negatively, and you can really pick up on some other things, you know, that's probably a good indication that you may need some outside help to deal with these things. So in summary, if a child just gets mad and punches a wall, a lot of that is just I think developmental behavior, mm-hmm. figuring out boundaries, what can I do, what can I get away with, what's appropriate versus, you know, are we living in a home where we're having to rearrange all the pictures to cover all the walls in the house, right. or all the holes in the, in the walls. Right, right. Got it. Okay. Number two on your list is the, a change in academic or physical performance. What are we looking at as a parent there? Yeah, changes in academic and physical performance could involve things like your child's grade slipping. Maybe they're not as satisfactory as what your family has decided uh, the level of grades needs to be in your home, and that's probably different for every family. But is your child skipping class? Are you getting calls from the office that 
you know, Susie wasn't in class today or that she didn't even bother to attend school at all. Um, maybe in the physical area, has your child started gaining weight? Are they sleeping a lot more now? Are they sleeping a whole lot less? Have they started smoking? Have they quit the basketball team after working for three semesters to try to get on there? Um, so paying attention to those things. And if you have younger children, um, after you have potty trained, has the child now gone back into a stage where you're mm -hmm. having issues with that kind of thing? Something we don't talk about a lot, but it is an indicator that something may be wrong, either medically or emotionally. Right. So, um, you know, you did point out that it, it, there's a, an expectation in there. And so, you know, when is it a difference? You know, when should a parent check themselves on this particular area and go, am I expecting more out of my child than what maybe they're capable of delivering? It, you, know, you know, what I mean is like, you know, maybe your kid did great in elementary school, but now you get into the world of middle school and they just are, maybe it's, it's intelligence, EQ, whatever the case may be. But we carry this whole, like, I was a straight A student, you should be a straight A student kind of a thing. And so when are we developing a problem that might not actually be there? Are you following my question here? I am, yes. And a lot of that, we could take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves, am I trying to live vicariously through my child? Is my child's performance so reflected on me that it changes my, um, my own self-esteem mm -hmm. and, and how I interact with them and how I interact in the world and how I perform myself? So that could be really a, a self-discovery question for us as parents. Right. But also to begin um, reading some books on child and teen development and, and what's expected at different stages. And of course, if you don't find the answers that you're comfortable with for you and your family, working with a child counselor or someone who works with children to kind of process those things as to what's appropriate and what's not for that age and maybe even that personality type of your child and their interest. Okay, that's good. So the uh, the other part that comes in with academic performance that, you know, when parents see a child changing their, you know, their expectations or, you know, now they've got like, you know, my son at one point like had 80 unturned, you know, Spanish assignments he didn't turn in. And and so a parent is sitting here going, am I, am I now calling up a, a school counselor or a counselor therapist for them to talk to, or should I just enforce them, you know, their performance by grounding them or taking away their phone or, or, or whatever? Is there any benefit to, I guess I'm, I'm calling it enforcing an academic performance versus being sensitive to the fact that it could be an underlying problem? I think there could be a benefit in setting the expectation for your child and, and for your family but that's a very personal choice for every family. Mm -hmm. And of course, children also have to realize that there is accountability in our world. Even though we're living in a society where there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of accountability sometimes, and um, we're not raising children to be with the idea of being adults in mind right now. We know that that's the end goal, but we're not doing a lot of things as a whole, as a society, to get them ready for that stage. And, you know, sometimes children do just need to know these are the rules. And if you want the freedoms that come with this age and stage of your life, you have to abide by the household rules. And this is what we've decided. 
Good. And if you don't like that, you're welcome to make your rules when you have your children. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I know that sounds hard and harsh, and I don't mean it to be, but mm-hmm. uh, accountability is a big part of, of rearing children, as, as we know. Right. And I've heard that too, that, you know, they, there's without boundaries, they feel more lost than, than knowing where the fence is around them, that they're free to roam within that, um, that kids don't like to actually just flail out on their own and stuff. Absolutely. Okay. Number three is change in social behaviors. So when I'm looking at my kid changing, what's a good change for a kid and what's the kind that is bad and requires me kind of perking up and paying more attention? So a good change might be if you had a child who doesn't enjoy going out with anyone that maybe they are taking some initiative to go out and join some groups at school, maybe interact more. Um, If church is part of your family's life, that they're interacting more in that and even bringing their friends around to meet you. Not that you guys have to hang out, but just a quick introduction um, so that you can meet that child. Those are positive things. And we generally recognize those as very positive. But I think part of the flip side of that, the, the negative social behaviors are things when life becomes very chaotic and you're not sure what is going on with your teen, when they become very secretive, when the activities they're involved in are more destructive and more negative than they are positive overall, you know, that may be a time to have a conversation around social behaviors and, and again, what we expect as a family, what society expects out of us, and, and how we're going to perform in our family and, and what the parents expect of the child. But it also, when the parent approaches this warmly and asks the child, help me understand a lot of times they can get some great information, you know, something else is going on here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes kids, especially when they get into middle school and high school, they, they might end up flip-flopping like their best friend might change like every three months. Is that normal behavior for kids? I mean, should parents get concerned that, you know, you know, Sally's out and Ashley's in, you know, just within a matter of like four weeks. I think that is fairly normal because our teens are changing so, so quickly in these years. And um, around the age of 14, they get a hormone dump that um, a lot of things really begin changing, even at that age, as compared to the other years in their teenage years. And so that's not uncommon. Where I would get really concerned is if it was a very best friend for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that they had had for many, many years. And now just all of a sudden the two parties aren't even speaking to each other. Mm. So, you know, what's going on there? So let's, let's have a conversation and sometimes friendships just dissolve and, and that's okay, but let them dissolve appropriately. We don't have to be um, full of animosity if we decide to dissolve a friendship. Right. Okay. Number four on the list of the five indicators here is a change in willingness or ability to discuss things willingly and calmly. So tell me more about, tell me more about that. Yeah, we do have to understand that all not, not all children are communicative with us. Not all children are forthcoming, even either young children or as teenagers. So we have to honor that in our children. Some are introverts, some are just quieter and as most parents, or most parents really do know the personality of their child, but whatever level the child has been at 
when they're healthy and when things have been going good, if they really sink in that level, um, going to a sub-level, that's probably a time to begin um, trying to pull things out of them, see what's going on with them, um, work with a therapist to help them figure out what's going on with them because the truth is they may not know themselves in, in what is going on. But if, if you've always had a family that laughs and plays together and now all of a sudden, you know, somebody is again going into these um, negative social behaviors, physical behaviors, and they're not willing to talk about it, mm-hmm. at least have a conversation about it, you know, that, that really does require, deserve some attention from the parents. Don't just let it keep, keep going. You don't want six or seven years of a teenager in your home that's not speaking to you. Right. Or gets angry every single conversation you have. Right. Now I know, um, you know, I've got two kids of a 13 year old daughter and a, my son is going to be 16 here in about two weeks and the totally different communicators. My daughter is very much like her mother, big surprise. Um, and what I had discovered, you know, for her where she had some triggers for one, I found out she gets hangry, you know, I mean, if her okay. blood sugar's low, you know, and, and that made a huge difference, especially, you know, I, and I shared this with her, her dad. So I was like, Hey, you know, don't push her when she hasn't slept or she, you know, she's tired or she might, her blood sugar might be dropping, you know, and, and so, because you could not have a conversation. I mean, everything was a crisis at that point. And once I figured that out and we were having problems or, you know, something came up, I just knew to back off and inevitably, you know, giving her some food and, and even having a conversation with her saying, Hey, you know what, this is what I'm noticing that you do. So let's agree that we're not going to discuss anything. You're going to have a snack. You're going to sit down, you're going to take a nap, whatever it is. And she would arrive like out of that, you know, that fugue state eventually. And she'd be able to talk about, you know, what was going on in, in the problem. And so that made a huge difference there. My son, on the other hand, is, is very quiet. And, you know, my backstory with my kids is that, you know, when there are, uh, you know, their dad and I separated, he was the custodial parent for, you know, about seven years. And so I, I had them every other weekend. And so knowing his, you know, communication style, which is very non-existent at times, um, I felt like when I, now my son was you know, living with me that he didn't get the benefit of kind of being trained to be able to talk or to have an environment to be able to do that. And so when I would notice that he was kind of clamming up, like you said, like, you know, suddenly he was in a great mood and all of a sudden clearly something was wrong and he just refused. I had to sit here and and ask myself and hopefully you can, you know, share some insight in this, you know, do I force him into this because I'm, I'm trying to train him to not be locked in because that's my biggest fear, you know, is that kids can't express themselves and they don't feel like they're in a safe place to be able to do that. And so, you know, how far do you push a kid just so that they, they, they develop the skills at being able to talk because that is training them as an adult. I mean, that's, that's lifelong that to me, that's like healthy. Is there, is there a point at which you go too far or, or, or is there a way to do that? That is such a great question. And I was sitting here listening and thinking about even in the counseling session, the therapist has to weigh that very carefully, how far, do I go during the session before a client, whether it's a child, an adult, a teen, just begins to shut down. Sometimes we can approach children and ask them, well, what are you thinking and what are you feeling? And if emotions have not been accepted in a home and if there has not been um, 
a focus on, on asking people, what are you thinking? How are you feeling today? What's going on? Then someone may answer you and say, I don't know. And they really don't know. Mm -hmm. So while you were talking about that training time, there's a possibility that even he doesn't know exactly what he's thinking and feeling and, and those kinds of things and how to react. So Again, I think that's a very individual question. You know, is it satisfactory to you? Is it what you want for your child? And to really do everything you can to deepen that relationship and give them every opportunity to express themselves. And again, remembering to honor that some some people are just quiet people mm -hmm. and they tell us in their own time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, and this is the point where we, you know, my intro, I, I mentioned a German shepherd. And so if anybody out there can hear a bark in the background, that's that lack of boundaries, of your dog, oh, <laughs> which is totally fine. That's what podcasting is all about. So we're yes. all good here. <laughs> he was outside yesterday and ran under the neighbor's garage door that was open for a foot. So I was standing in a stranger's driveway hollering for my dog to come out. <laughs> this is my life now. I've raised my kids, but now I have this puppy. <laughs> Now you've got the fur baby to deal with, right? Yes. Um, so we're at number five and the last one here, which is a change in clinginess or a willingness to be around um, relatives or family friends. So what what is this that we're looking for? Sometimes when children begin to experience anxiety and they don't know what to do with it, they go back to what's familiar. So when they begin exhibiting that separation anxiety, they want to be with the parent. And also, if it's a situation that they don't want to be around relatives, maybe that they've always been around, that's an indicator that there may need to be a more serious conversation. If you mm -hmm. can't figure out what's going on there, because we don't want to think about it in our world. But sometimes children have experienced years of sexual abuse and they don't know how to bring that to the table to talk to their parent about it. So, um, you know, I don't think we need to be um, concerned about every time <laughs> the kids right. don't want to go to Uncle Bob's. Because right. or, sometimes or, Uncle Bob is just, he's mean and nobody likes him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, maybe it's just weird. Maybe yeah. I just don't want to see him today. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah, But um, when you notice a definite pattern, behavioral change, begin looking at that. Look at other things that are going on. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you can work through anxiety. Skilled therapists have all kinds of tools that are non-invasive, but that just help children and adults learn to re-regulate and, and to just be able to, to work in the world that's around them, the one right. they're living in. Right. Now, and this one is actually, you know, it's of particular note to me because I, I remember I remember dealing with this myself um, at, at about 11 years old. And, and it's one of those where, you know, now at 46, I look back and I'm just like, I wish something had happened differently for me. Um, you know, I had a, a moment where I had had a nightmare of, uh, my mother dying in a, um, in the dream and I woke up and I, I had all this anxiety over all of that. And she gave me a candy cane and I was walking to school and I didn't even get a half a block away and the candy cane fell out of my, my hand and it broke. And it triggered me because the first thought I had was this might be the last thing I'll ever get from my mom. She's, she could die today, you know, and I ran home and I refused to go to school 
you know, looking back, you know, and I actually do, and I tell everybody that knows me this, you know, I, I do therapy to, to heal a lot of what has happened and, and gone on. But this was a, you know, this was actually a PTSD moment for me because I'd had an experience at six years old that it triggered all of those feelings of abandonment and fear and, and death. And, and, you know, I remember finally being drugged to school and the, and the consolation, you know, from the school counselor was, you know, you don't have ESP. This is just a dream. Don't worry about it. And that was kind of the way it was just like brushed over that, you know, the nightmare and the, and that fear and everything like that really didn't mean anything. It was just some random thing that my brain was doing. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty. You're looking back and going, "Gosh, that was a that was a pretty." I mean, I, you know, I remember that. I remember that feeling and that fear. And what I had, you know, what I was picking up on as a kid was that my mother was in the process of going through another divorce, which was part of the trigger of the original. And and I was sensing all of that, like all that change around there. And however it was happening, you know, that seemed in, you know, there wasn't anything really descriptive, but there was definitely something that I felt as the kid that was drawing up all these feelings of of that fear again and that anxiety again. And sure. so, and then, like I said, I, you know, I, I, to me, I like, I don't want parents to dismiss this one because, you know, I can tell you, like go back in time, like 30 some years later, I remember that moment and it mattered. Like that was a big deal. Like that, that could have, you know, that was a, a chain of, of events for me in my life, you know, from that point forward. So um, when you, when you talk with families that have this kind of stuff, what have you found have typically been the sources for these, you know, these, we talked about possibly sexual abuse and stuff like that, but what other kinds of experiences when you go through a family with therapy and they, and their kids do this, that we find that is the source of this change in this behavior for them? You know, it could actually be anything. Um, It could be the death of a person that's close to them or the impending death. It could be the death of a pet. There's uh, a lot of stuff going on around pet loss and grief because people attach to their pets. Um, Even these that, as we see, have no manners or boundaries. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Any, any kind of changes, so like in school, maybe their best friend moved away, um, family members changing, people marrying in, people divorcing, moves, deployments. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if there are things going on in the world, let me just put this out there. Things like 9-11, things like Sandy Hook shooting, mm-hmm. um, the shooting we had several months ago. I, I'm sorry, I can't recall the name of where it was in Florida. Oh, yeah. um, But if there are these kinds of things going on, don't have your kiddos sitting there watching that with you. Just, just don't, Mm -hmm. you know, learn to, to deal with that. And there are therapists who can help you have those conversations, but that kind of stuff on end develops more trauma. So you really don't want to do that, but any type of of change or loss or even good things in impending, um, circumstances that may be exciting for the family, even, even a new baby, Mm -hmm. uh, those can, those can still bring about anxious feelings. Mm -hmm. So the, the five indicators we've gone through these and I'll I'll just go ahead and read them real quick. You know, number one is um, self-destructive behaviors. We're looking for number two, change in academic and physical performance. Um, Number three, change in social behaviors. Um, number four is a uh, change in willingness or ability to discuss things willingly and calmly. And number five is a change in clinginess or willingness to be around uh, relatives and family friends. So for all the parents out there that have checked off one box or all five boxes, now they've decided that they're going to get their, um, their child some professional help. Aside from setting up the appointment, 
you know, what is the parent's role in their child's mental health? The parent's role is huge in this, and it can be a making or breaking point, I believe, in many situations. You know, unfortunately, we still have a stigma surrounding mental health in our society today. Mm-hmm. And it's so unfortunate because when, um, when my throat hurts, I go to the doctor. When my car needs fixing, I go to the mechanic. You know, when I have issues that need fixed, I find the professional to help me fix those or to, or to work through those things for a, a better outcome. But with mental health, we want to just keep on pushing that down. Mm-hmm. Right. I, and I agree with that. And I, I you know, to me, I also, I, I feel like we are having a better understanding of mental health and brain development in particular from just, just a neuroscience state that I think we've overestimated um, resiliency and we've underestimated the power of toxic stress during brain development. And, you know, to me, those two need to be, you know, um, kind of reversed that, you know, you know, making everybody harder and more resilient is how we, you know, improve our health is in fact, not really always the best answer. It means you're subjecting somebody to high levels of toxic stress and especially kids and asking them to figure it out. And they, they really, they can't, you know, it's, you know, it stunts that emotional development and stuff. Um, And I'm with you, like, you know, to me, mental health with your kids is not a spectator sport. They, they are exhibiting something that they have learned or experienced in the environment that you've created for them as their parent. So, um, so do you, you know, when a kid or a parent calls you up and, you know, wants to get some services for their, for their child, do you sit there and say, Hey, how about you? Do you want to meet with me a few sessions and see how things are going for you, you know, to the parent? Generally, I involve the parent. Absolutely. In the first session, do I personally involve the parent and every therapist will have a little bit different approach, but, um, you know, kids, can leave off a lot of really important details. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, um, so I do involve the parent, especially in that intake session. I also talk to the child about, you know, this is a confidential environment, unless I find out that you're going to hurt yourself or you have plans to hurt someone else or that someone is hurting you. And ethically, I need to deal with those things. But outside of that, we can keep things pretty well confidential. But there may come a time that I really feel that it's important for mom or mom and dad, whoever the adults in the home are, to um, to know some things. So maybe I could help you share those things with them, you know, with the, the child client's permission to do that. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important that we we involve as therapists, and, and good therapists certainly will do that, involve the parents in there. But, um, you know, we, we bring home these cute, snuggly, pink flesh, little bundles of sweetness. And all of a sudden we're consumed with the care for this child and we buy their clothes and their toys and make their doctor visits and all the stuff that goes into caring for them. But we never stop to purposefully think about their mental health. Right. Instead, we tend to have this unconscious perspective, I think, of, thinking that it's just a byproduct or a good or a bad, a bad outcome based on the other things that we're doing. So it's time as parents in the 21st century that we put our children's mental health right up there with um, their doctor visits, their new baby checkups, well baby checkups. Yeah, I, I agree. So here's the, the million dollar question is yeah. if, um, 
you know, with my daughter, I've been able to, and, and I set the example in my family, you know, with my kids and stuff, because I do it. I treat my mental health very, very much. And they, then they know um, that I take it very seriously, you know, make a suggestion to, you know, a teenage kid, like, Hey, I think you need to go see a counselor and they've got the, they know the stigmas. So, and they'll, they'll say no, you know, so how do you coax a kid that you believe would benefit from this, you know, because they all believe that they can figure it out themselves or they can all Snapchat with their friends all day and they'll solve the world's problems that way. And we know better there. So what's your advice for a, a parent who has a child that they want to be able to bring into this and, and give them some of this professional attention they deserve, but the kid is kind of like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah. And, um, First of all, at some point, if things have gone too far south, it, you may need to require that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's just the bottom line because sometimes people just will not cooperate no matter how many times you, you politely ask them. But the truth is, um, you, you know, if my child is running a fever, he doesn't get to give me permission to take him to the doctor or not. Right. True. Right. Yep. So that's, that's my decision and that is my responsibility in good parenting. So if I want good outcomes for my child, I have to make sure I do the good things. I do have a free resource for your listeners, nice. and that is how to talk to your child about depression. So that's just about a five or six minute video. It's short, but it's it's got some great information in it, and they can find that on my website. I'll give you the link that you can put in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And I'll also have a little um, bonus to go with that of a resource list of books for children and for teens and for you as parents and some websites that they can check out. And again, I'm not necessarily endorsing these things, but saying here are some options for you to pursue on your own also to give you some information and ed education. Oh, absolutely. And that's great. That is fantastic. And, and to make sure, yes, I will have the website link in the show description so that everybody can actually just get it, click it, and navigate right on over there. Well, Janet, thank you so much for your time and thank your dog as well for chiming in. <laughs> and nobody can hear this, but my dog is also in the background just like, you know, upset because, you know, they all have to be involved here. So, right, um, right. And so Janet's website to your, um, your counseling business is going to be in there along with the link to the how to talk to your child about depression. Um, thank you for listening today to One Broken Mom. If you have a question about self-improvement or parenting that you'd like to hear more about, visit my website at amikabertoni.com and use the contact form to send me a message. I love hearing from people. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, I'm not going to say no. So same process, go to the website. Um, you can also find me on Facebook and shoot me a message. I want to thank my One Broken Mom Media team, which includes Ashley L Productions for all the video work that you see on YouTube and Facebook, and also John Kaplan Photography and Joanna Monger Photography for the flattering photos that you'll see since I suck at taking selfies. And while he had a day off today, Sean Walker, who does sound engineering. So if you do not like today's episode, it is not his fault. It is all mine. Um, thank you again. Thank you, Janet, so much for spending this time with me. And everyone that's out there, I'm looking forward to having you back. Take care.